Well, uh, what, what, what an uh, unexpected blessing that, that was, and uh, all these years, again, that was a first, and uh, uh, so, so precious, so, so sweet, uh, very much so. Uh, and let me say uh, again, guys, how much uh, our family appreciates uh, your prayers, has appreciated your prayers. Uh, we had uh, Melissa's service uh, late Friday afternoon uh, with the family, and then uh, followed by, by a huge uh, celebration of life, a party. That's what she, that's what she wanted to do, and uh, and boy, uh, they turned out to celebrate. And um, so, thank you so much for your prayers uh, during this time, and your continued prayers as well. Thank you so much. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to to John chapter eight this morning. John chapter eight. <clears throat> Some of you may remember that. Um, it was back in about 1983 that a, a project was initiated to establish what were called safe places in s- different areas of cities and communities. <clears throat> and uh, it was to be places where anytime a child or an adult, even an, an adult, felt like their personal safety was being threatened, they could go to one of these places and be safe. Um, they, they did not have a lot of difficulty finding the places, uh, but they did have a lot of difficulty coming up with a sign, specifically a safe sign. <laughs> Their first attempt at one was this. <laughs> I mean, how creepy is that? Right? <laughs> if you want to feel safe, let Gargantua take you in his arms. <laughs> well, that, that was pretty creepy, and then they went try, tried this one was the second attempt, which was not a whole lot better, <laughs> depending on how you feel about frontal hugs. But anyway, um, and then they finally came up with just something very, very simple, and that was this, just a safe place, a safe place. Signs are definitely helpful. They're definitely helpful. But it takes a lot more than putting up a sign, does it not, to make a place safe. It was uh, several years ago now that uh, the key leaders of our church got together and ultimately put together what we believe is what God wanted us to say about the DNA, that he, the spiritual DNA of our church. And it was just that simple statement. Many of you could repeat it out loud. Many of you have, have, have already memorized it by this time. But it's just a very simple statement that says, to be a safe place of healing grace and hope for all generations. In fact, let's say that together. Can we do that? To be a safe place of healing grace and hope for all generations. Well, this morning, I want us to talk for a few minutes about what it means to be specifically a safe place, a safe place. You know, I realize that there is a sense in which a church is inherently really a dangerous place. A wonderful quote by the late C.S. Lewis who said, church is not a safe place because Jesus is not a tame lion. That a great statement. We don't ever want to be a safe place in any way that limits or constrains the work of Jesus Christ in our midst. We always want to be a place where it is safe to die to self and live to Christ. A place where it is safe to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love one another. 
a place where it is safe to grow in Christ, free from religiosity, a place where it is safe to discover and explore the call of God on each and every one of our lives and seek the impact that he desires to make in and through our lives upon those in our generation. We want to be that kind of safe place. Jesus illustrates that and much more for us in this amazing story that we find in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, these religious leaders of the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees who bring this woman to Jesus, were essentially the, the self-appointed appointed guardians of, of the religious faith, of, of the Jewish religion at that time. The scribes were the ones who were the experts in interpreting the Jewish law, or what was called the law of Moses. Uh, the Pharisees were, were the, the fierce guardians, they thought of themselves, of the law. And both of these groups, both of these groups, felt at this point in Jesus' ministry very, very threatened by him. I mean, they were threatened by their authority. They thought he was a dangerous threat to their authority with the people. But also they thought he was a threat to the, the Jewish religion as they knew it. And from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he had been messing around with their most cherished religious rules and regulations. You remember that, for example, there was supposed to be no work on the Sabbath. But Jesus actually had the gall to heal people on the Sabbath, something they thought was work. He even allowed his disciples to pick grain in the fields because they were hungry and they needed something to eat on the Sabbath. Those were the kinds of things that drove the religious leaders crazy with anger. But Jesus was also messing with their theology. He told one of the leading Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, that one teaching pulverized every religious prop that they had ever been leaning upon in order to try to earn their salvation. Well, these scribes and Pharisees had invested, again, their entire lives in rule-keeping and regulations. But Jesus, Jesus came into the world talking not about rules and regulations. Jesus came into the world talking about relationships. Relationship, a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship with one another, relationship. Jesus, when he said a personal relationship with God, he would say that happens when a person is born again, just as he told Nicodemus, when a person is spiritually regenerated by the Holy Spirit by placing one's faith and trust in him. They had practiced a religion that was all about people trying to work their way up to God. But again, Jesus came teaching that God was reaching us for a personal relationship. A church that is a safe place is a church that is about authentic relationship. Again, relationship with God, relationship with one another. A safe church is not about keeping a list of rules and regulations in order to be accepted by God or in order to be accepted by the members of a church. My older sister, five years older than, than I was, than I am, 
died after a reoccurrence of cancer back in 2018. And about six months before she died, she shared something with me that she had never told me before. Obviously, the two, we grew up in the same church. All those, those years that we, uh, the entire years that we were growing up, we attended the same church. And while I had had a, a very positive experience in that church, she had not. She told me how she had often felt judged and looked down upon many that were in her age group and even by some of their parents. And she explained how all of that had left such a bad impression in her heart and mind that it was one of the big reasons why she, as an adult, struggled with returning to church and would only attend on occasions. Broke my heart, to say the least. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Friends, a legalistic church that loves its traditions and regulations and rules more than it loves people is not a safe church. And friends, with election season starting to heat up again, there is a, an, an additional kind of legalism that we must be very, very careful to avoid this time around. Please. That's legalistic political ideology. Political ideology has become a test of fellowship for so many Christians, and that should never be. I mean, I, you, you would not believe how many pastors I talked to who, whose hearts were broken because of divided fellowship over political ideology. Again, it should never happen. You may remember that two of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, who had formerly been a tax collector, and Simon the Zealot, were at exact opposites of the political spectrum in their day. I mean, I suspect there were a lot of lively conversations around the campfire at night between those two and among the whole group, actually. But I just, it, it was never, ever a test of fellowship for them. Obviously, they worked together alongside one another as they worked together with Christ. A church with any kind, any kind of legalistic practices is not a safe place. You know, as, as I've often said, we are not a perfect church, but we have worked to be a safe place. And it has been very gratifying, I, I'll have to say, it's been very gratifying to hear many of our new members of our church tell stories very similar to my sister's, where they had been badly burned in the past, in a past experience in, in whatever church that they, or church is that they were in in, in those years, and they had left church in, with the actually with the thought that they may not ever return to church again until they came here. They found this to be a safe place. A church feels safe. It feels safe when it's a place to where you know that you, where you know you will be loved and accepted, where you know that you truly matter to God and you truly matter to the people of that church. That, that is a safe place. And let me say thank you Thank you to so many of you who have worked hard at making this a safe place. Thank you. Well, I need to get back to the story, don't I? <laughs> 
The scribes and Pharisees in John chapter 8 <clears throat> have teamed up here together, and very arrogantly, they think they are about to catch Jesus in a trap from which he cannot escape. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So how was this a test? I and mean, why is it they think they have Jesus trapped? Well, first of all, they underestimated the fact that he was the smartest person who has ever lived. <laughs> well, the law of Moses, more than once, said that a woman caught in adultery should die. For example, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. So the big question here is this. Will Jesus agree to have her stoned or not? It does seem apparent that the woman is guilty. I mean, she makes no effort to defend herself. But if Jesus says to execute the woman then all of his talk and teaching about compassion and mercy is going to sound a whole lot more like, you know, coming to me, all you who are weary, and I will have you stoned. <laughs> However, if he lets her go, then it might appear to the people that he is disrespecting the law of Moses and, in effect, just simply turning it into a legal buffet of sorts, if you will, where they can just pick and choose whatever it is they want to pick and reject whatever they don't want. What's really happening here is not an attack on Jesus' judgment. It's an attack on Jesus' love, on his love, his love for all sinners, which poses the huge question, how do you deal with sin and yet love the sinner? In other words, how do you balance grace and truth? In the very first chapter of John's gospel, in verse 14, John describes Jesus as being full of both grace and truth, which is exactly what we're about to see here, exactly what we're about to see, his grace and truth in all its fullness. The scribes and Pharisees demand an answer. Jesus, so what do you, what do you say, Jesus, in verse 5? Well, Jesus doesn't say anything at first. Last part of verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What do you think he wrote? What, what do you think he was writing there on the ground? Uh, there's been tons of speculation over all the centuries as to what he was writing. Some suggest that what Jesus was doing was, was writing down a list of all the sins of those men who were holding stones in their hands right then. <laughs> Nobody really knows. Personally, I tend to think he could have just simply been doodling while essentially counting to 10 in order to allow his anger toward these religious leaders to cool off, to cool down. I, we get so focused on this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders that we almost lose sight of the fact that there is another person who is greatly affected, and that's who? The woman. It's the woman. 
This woman had been caught. She had clearly sinned. But it's also very evident that she was being used, that she was set up by the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, think about it. Last I recall, it takes two to tango, right? (laughs) So where is the man? You heard me read that verse that actually, uh, just a moment ago from Deuteronomy, that actually addresses the guilt of the man first. But there is no man present. I, I think it's obvious she was an easy setup for them because they knew of her and they knew of her reputation and lifestyle. Who knows, maybe some of them knew her very well. You know what I'm saying? When Jesus looks into the heart of this woman, he sees someone who is just like all of us, a broken sinner. He sees a woman who not only needs spiritual healing, but emotional healing as well. I mean, who knows what reasons why she chose this lifestyle? And she's a woman, as they say, who has been looking for love in in all the wrong places. But Jesus sees a woman who has been used by many men for their own selfish pleasure. And now, here she is, being used once again by these religious leaders. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I am not excusing her sin. And we'll see here in a moment that Jesus does not excuse it either. But he looked beyond the outward manifestation of her behavior to see the need for healing within. He sees her as a person whom God deeply loves as a person who could be set free from all the baggage and pain of her past. Jesus sees her as one who could start all over and experience his healing power to stop making sinful decisions and start making life-giving decisions. Friends, there is no depth of sin that is beyond the reach of his grace. That's what we do as a safe church. We acknowledge that certain sins have more consequences than others, but we don't elevate certain sins as being more deserving of punishment or condemnation than others. We recognize that we are all made in the image of God and that we are all marred by sin and we are all in need of his grace, his salvation, and his restoration. This is a safe church where regardless of wherever you come from, whatever your background, whatever you've done or not done, achieved or not achieved, we all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross the ground of his grace. That's why we say this is a place where it is okay to not be okay, but where the grace of God in Jesus Christ can make you okay again. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But the scribes and the Pharisees just just kept pressing, verse 7, And and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you 
Be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. With one simple statement, I mean, Jesus completely turns the tables, completely turns the tables. He doesn't disrespect the law of Moses, and neither does he minimize her sin. But suddenly, it's not Jesus or the woman who are on trial here. It's the scribes and Pharisees, right? It's as though Jesus holds up a huge mirror and says, okay, Okay, if we're going to really get serious about observing the law of Moses, then who among you is innocent? And, by the way, for having illegally set up this woman who might possibly be stoned, you would ultimately be responsible for that and deserve to die also. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. It was the oldest and the wisest who understood the implications of Jesus' words first, and then fortunately the younger followed. Well, so who does that leave now as the only one qualified to throw a stone? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the sinless one. He's the only one qualified to throw a stone, and yet he's not throwing. And so there they are, the sinner and the Savior. Verse 10 Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now notice, Jesus doesn't just wink at her sin, does he? He acknowledges her sin and forgives her. In essence, he says, you are forgiven and free, so now go and use your freedom in the right way. Live for God. Grace and truth. You know, the attitude some people, even some churches have, is to essentially reverse the order of Jesus' words here to say, go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. In other words, go and get your act together first, and then you'll be welcome here. But friends, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it? A safe church first welcomes knowing that it's after giving one's life to Christ that a person then has his spirit's power within them to be able to choose to live in obedience. 
Again, not in order to be accepted, but obedience that is motivated, motivated by gratitude for Christ's love and forgiveness in one's life. That's why we obey. Not to earn or deserve salvation, but out of gratitude. So, this woman in the story goes from being used as an object of lust to becoming an object of of unconditional love, the love, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Are there any sweeter words than that? Than to hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you. And as a safe place, as a safe church, friends, we must also never forget what it cost Jesus to be able to say those words to us. It cost him his life. It cost him the shedding of his blood upon the cross. I mean, how can we respond in any other way? than to seek to live obedient lives in holy gratitude for what he has done for us. I know it's an often used statement. But you know what? It, it never grows old when it's true. And that's this. As a church, we are not a hotel for saints. We are a hospital for sinners. We are a safe place where battered and broken sinners can come to receive his grace, forgiveness, restoration, renewal, and renewed strength in order to be set free to live and enjoy that freedom in Christ. And friends, as a church now, more than ever before, we must all work together to make and keep this a safe place a safe place of healing, grace, and hope for all generations. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... Each and every one of us pause to give you thanks, to express our gratitude for that day when you looked into our hearts and said to us, neither do I condemn you. When you looked into our hearts and bestowed your grace and forgiveness upon us to make us new creations in Christ. Father, I pray that, again, more than ever before, we might be a people who are determined to make and keep this a safe place of healing, grace, and hope for all, for all generations. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.